on ABC Radio. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi. Good morning. Ahoy there. Welcome aboard another edition of The Big Fish. A very serious discussion to kick out this morning. Our first cast on The Big Fish looks at the long battle on the south coast of New South Wales that's played out in state parliament to appropriately accommodate cultural fishing practices for First Nations people in that part of the world. Do you like abalone? If you don't prepare it the right way, you might as well grab an inner tube off your bike and chew on that. Well, a war has erupted over the right to sustainably harvest this expensive rubbery mollusk on the south coast of New South Wales. According to the Greens in New South Wales, legislation passed in the Parliament this week now requires enforcement officers to take reasonable steps to establish that fishing is not cultural or within native title before they conduct searches of First Nations people. But they still believe that it doesn't offer enough protection for Aboriginal fishers. Greens MP Sue Higginson. It's really important that we implement a law that recognises cultural fishing practices in New South Wales. It's been 13 years that we have been promising that this law will come into effect. The thing that's holding it up is is actually providing local area management plans that will describe what the cultural fishing practice of the sea, particular sea country is. So the government really needs to take those steps, get to work, work with Aboriginal people so that we can have those local management plans sitting alongside a law that recognises and empowers cultural fishing practices in New South Wales. We have seen moves for local management plans around Hastings. We're currently working on one in the Tweed. We now need them in all of the appropriate locations in New South Wales. Mark Benaziak, a local Upper House MP for the Shooters and Fishers, says the government's been dragging the chain on this legislation. Get on with it and commence, commence the Section 21AA, as well as put in uh, you know, the regulations and the local management plans that are needed to, to make this work. I think that's the, the principal one. Uh, others that stem off on that is about the culture of the department that has allowed this to occur and making sure there's proper training, a comprehensive training package uh, for compliance officers and everyone within the Department of Fisheries to make sure that when they're dealing with this issue of cultural fishing, it's done in a respectful way and, and, and compliance is done in a respectful way um, because clearly that hasn't been happening. John Smythe, the Secretary of the Abalone Association of New South Wales and a far south coast commercial abalone diver, says it's important to uphold the rights of cultural fishers, but it must be in a sustainable and monitored way. There's not been an attempt um, to actually delineate between a person that's fishing for his cultural use. In other words, um, and under government policy it was 10 10 abalone per person per day to catch those to, to, for cultural use to feed the family, or for, but not for sale. Whereas they're putting in the same basket some of these guys that are caught with huge quantities of abalone, and I'm talking you know, well into the hundreds, um, and particularly those abalone being undersized. 
and they're being taken up to the illegal markets. So there's a lot of risk going on in there in terms of, you know, food safety going into the markets with product that's been secreted in the back of cars and so on, and um, and illegally sourced and undersized. So it's not only a resource threat, um, but it's a food safety threat. Barrister Tony McAvoy, SC, Australia's first Indigenous senior counsel, believes compliance officers have to acknowledge and understand cultural fishing. What we know from the uh, cases that have been run in, in the recent past is that uh, fisheries officers in New South Wales are not given any training which enables them to identify whether an Aboriginal person is carrying out fishing according to their traditional law and custom and therefore as of right. In circumstances when they are not given such training, to then be given the power to force force people to uh, allow them to search their property and, and require them to answer questions uh, is particularly offensive. Tony McAvoy, SC there, and thanks to Kira Proust, ABC South East, for help in compiling that look at the recognition of Aboriginal cultural fishing on the South Coast. And the story of fishing in Australia starts with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And historian Anna Clark documents some of the efficient, effective and sustainable methods used. That's coming up next from her book The Catch on the Big Fish.
It's the Big Fish and Gurumul with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra and a song that translates as Tuna Swimming, Goparul. And Anna Clark is an historian who really brings the past to life. She's told the story of fishing through history in Australia. The catch, the story of fishing in Australia, and you'd start at the right place, uh, 65,000 years of, of fishing sophistication, the, the Indigenous people. Boy, they were good and yeah, are that's good. Yeah, an amazing story. Really ter- incredible sort of um, fishing practices and ingenuity considering the technological resources that were at hand, just some amazing fishing practices right around Australia. They played a huge role in the first settlers surviving, didn't they? Yeah, they sure did. Incredible. Um, they were very able fisher folk, uh, Aboriginal women right around sort of uh, Australia and in in Sydney Harbour in particular. The, the, those first, that first fleet, you know, they nearly starved in the second year because the fishing dried up and they didn't know where to get the fish. And, um, and it was the women who knew where those fish were and who were able to keep that, that colony um, alive, really. They were on the verge of starvation, so... Um, they knew where the fish were. The the, uh, the British guys certainly didn't, but Aboriginal women knew where to chase the fish, and they were incredible fisher fishers. Oh, and what evidence of their skills were you able to uncover for this book? Because there's a lot of evidence based research here. As as yeah. an historian, you've been able to go through the archives, haven't you? Yeah, it's, it's such one. You know, um, it's such a treat to write this book and research this book. I've studied history for a long time, but I've never done something as fun as this, and reaching back through some of those archives, archaeological archives that showed Aboriginal women in Victoria with severe because they were diving for abalone so much and the fish hooks that they used to um, to catch, you know, snapper and dory off the sides of their little kayaks. Some of them are still around, the fish hooks. There are archaeological remnants of them. The fishing line they used to make by hand. Um, they used to use burley by spitting out chewed up mussels and oysters into the water. Like they were really, they were really keen and uh, skilled. Yes, they were. They were a dedicated mob. But I don't know if you're in a fishing club, Anna. I know you love your fishing, but yeah. um, to be in that club, you you had to make a few sacrifices, I believe. You certainly did, and um, I'd, uh, lucky they did it when they were little. Because um, I'm not sure if uh, I would have signed up for it as a as any anything over the three month old mark. But when the little girls, fishing girls, were born um, as infants, a piece of spider web was tied around their left little pinky finger and the second joint, um, and it mortified and fell off after a couple of months. And that tiny little um, piece of finger was dropped into the Sydney Harbour as a sort of um, gift to the fishers and apparently it was done so that the women could wind up their fishing line because they were all hand liners they could wind it up more ably uh, I'm not quite sure the logistics of that but it was that's an extraordinary um, yeah sort of sacrifice to make to I just got to got to pay my fifty bucks a year to be a member of the Central Coast Fly Rodders Association. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty yeah, dramatic. I've got my fishing license too. So <laughs> That's, that's right. as far as I'll go. That's right. Well, phenomenal. But the, the sophistication of the gear. You know, this is a first time as a fisherwoman yourself that I think yeah. an historian has actually looked really closely at the methods. So, got really lovely uh, circle hooks, beautifully, uh, beautifully uh, sculpted. You've got really nice light strong line that's handmade you've got these 
little boats. I mean, you've even got an, an image of a woman fishing, catching fish, and in one of these tiny kayaks, um, pulling them out and breastfeeding yeah. a baby at the same time. I, I mean, I that takes coordination. Yeah, seriously. You don't want to be sort of fiddling with your drag or something at the same time, do you? <laughs> These women were what we could only describe today as master skippers. You know, they often had a babe at the breast, maybe even a toddler swimming around their legs, and they were kneeling on these tiny little canoes. Um, and they were, you know, probably only one and a half to two metres long, these little canoes and nowies, and they would fly out into the middle of the harbour, even out through the heads. Can you imagine about through Sydney heads catching... What if you've got a kingfish on that or something, you know? Yeah, be, tons um, of kingfish. kind of hair-raising for us, mm, but mm. they were truly, um, truly capable. Well, we had a, a story last week from Craig McGill, a, a Sydney Harbour fishing guide. One of his friends was catching the salmon off their heads and a, a seal was mooching around to steal the, the catch. And mm. a giant bull shark came up and bit Jesus. that seal in half. Uh, yet you've got these women in the tiny oh. flimsy bark kayak. Yeah. I mean, people on the stand-up paddle boards reckon they've got balance. Being towed by a, a metre-plus kingfish out through the heads. I mean, this is extraordinary stuff, Anna. I'm so glad you've documented it. Yeah, thank you. And it was a joy to document. Uh, and the, the sources that are available on this is actually so much fun to discover. You know, the images in the National Library of Australia and... Some of the earliest journals from the first fleeters and from some of the explorers who who were stunned by what they were seeing out on the harbour, these incredible fishwomen. And there are wonderful stories of, um, of men, too, spearing fish. Some of them were lying across the canoes with their heads under the water, just sight-spearing fish. So the skills... Uh, just such a joy to read about. Um, the sources are so vivid. You know, you can almost feel like you were there. I, the only thing I'm, I regret is not being able to see just how many fish there must have been in those days because it would have been really unbelievable. And, and you've also documented night fishing too and, and feasting on, on fish. Really phenomenal knowledge. People who'd walked on the bottom of Sydney Harbour before the last glacial melt. <laughs> they yeah, knew where right. the they knew where the, the drop offs were, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they knew they knew so much and uh, I guess it's the sort of information that's gleaned over literally tens of thousands of years of being in a place and seeing the seasons change and and incorporating those larger movements of time and environment into your own kind of cosmology so that Literally, the amount of magpies that were feasting on a particular berry at a certain time had a corresponding fish that would be, you know, Ludric would be rising then. Or the knowledge was just completely universal and all-encompassing. Really extraordinary uh, affiliation and knowledge about the, uh, the environment in which they were living. Were you able to also? gather a little bit of the, the picture of, of inland fishing knowledge, um, the, the fish traps, so on and so forth. The, yeah, some, some again, say, yeah. yeah, just an amazing kind of um, ingenuity, I suppose. Those gargantuan uh, fish traps out in Brewarrina uh, to catch seasonally huge sort of intakes of fish as they came up after a flood. Um, but all around Australia, you know, um, Burke and Wills, Wills in his diary describes a very intricate system of small traps out in you know the Diamantina River or somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, so there really were fish absolutely everywhere. And where there were fish, there were people who knew how to catch them. The sophistication of the nets too, 
quite extraordinary. They look like they've been manufactured by a machine, and they're rather big, uh, bigger than yeah. anything I thought they had. I didn't realise they had such great ability to make nets. You've found some very significant photos there, haven't you? Yeah, really terrific. And, and the photos that are in the book are just actually not the big ones. The big ones, you know, the, you have to imagine, you have to understand these nets were hand-gathered, so the fibres were gathered. And in the Sydney area, these were the usually the bark of currajong trees, which was then chewed to sort of unlock the fibres, which were then rolled along the legs and were then laced together. And the, and the lace work on these nets, the, the knots were so incredible that when um, the governor, Arthur Phillips, showed them to the women convicts on the first sleep, they, they thought it was like you know, English lace, fine lace work. They were so intricate. But then out in, in some of the um, inland areas, there's one of the explorers, I think it was um, Charles Sturt, came across a village... Uh, an Aboriginal village, which had, was empty, so maybe seasonally empty. And in one of the huts, he found a fishing net 90 metres across. And that would have been hand, you know, hand-gathered, hand-spun. Um, incredible, 90 metres. It's unbelievable to think about. would have been a prized possession, a huge, huge piece of infrastructure for that community. We're speaking with Anna Clark, and we're just looking at the first uh, section of this incredible book, The Catch, The Story of Fishing in Australia. How how did they get the symmetry? I'm looking at one of the images you've got um, of, of an Aboriginal man with the traditional tribal scars holding mm. a huge net mm. with, with perfect symmetry of the mesh. How did they do that, Anna? It was just a knowledge passed on generation to generation. Certainly no machine. They were all knotted by hand, um, but just incredible, uh, incredible, you know, these kind of works of art as much as, as well as functional, you know, lifelines to um, to keeping communities alive. But they are truly extraordinary, there's no doubt. Just that symmetry. I mean, you, just, I you couldn't do it. I don't know how they did it. it it's phenomenal. It certainly um, makes this, this myth of Terra Nullius look absolutely stupid, doesn't it, in, yeah, in the sophistication right. of how the people were living? Not only the sophistication of how they're living, but the resources that they were using. This was not, you know, a, a country where people didn't care about or didn't think that they weren't connected to the land on which they were living. You know, these these technologies for resource extraction and management. You know, there are stories of Aboriginal people carrying juvenile fish in coolmans to different branches of river systems to try and, you know, make sure that they were stopped in a certain way. So. If that's not aquaculture, I don't know what is. I, I had to laugh, though, at the watercolour from a John Hunter, of course, who's famous for, for the Hunter River in, in Newcastle yeah. um, back in 1788. He's had a crack at... at um had a crack at doing a watercolour of a snapper. It looks like a goldfish that's been donged on the head. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, really horrible. Uh, but but he tried his best. And then you go to um, a booty national park and the, the rangers will take you down to some of the carvings. Perfect perfect representations of brim just absolutely yes. scale perfect yeah. carved into rock yeah <laughs> just but so much better at because I, I guess they didn't know these fish the europeans did they yeah they were kind of i mean if you can imagine looking through they were looking through australia with european lenses on in a way and you know you look at some of those really early paintings by people like john clover and, and joseph Lysette, who really tried hard you know they, you can see they're really trying to capture those kind of folds in the landscape and but the, the trees still look like an oak tree if you if you look carefully enough and and the, the kangaroos kind of look a bit awkward as well um and and the fish aren't quite right but they they were obviously mesmerized by what they saw they were just gobsmacked by how many fish there were 
Historian Anna Clark there and a, a butte story that won the catch, the story of fishing in Australia, one of the best fishing books I've ever read. And don't take my word for it. Uh, Rob Paxavanis from Fishing Australia, who's been on the show for the last couple of weeks, wrote this. I just couldn't put it down. My best fishing read to date. So <laughs> he certainly loved it, too. Coming up, Stinker will look at some of his Aboriginal fishing mates from the Tweed. It's a theme that's certainly been running through The Big Fish this morning. The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Been a long time since I've been down to the crawling hole.
stinkers coming up on The Big Fish with more tales from the Tweed and a catch-up with some of his old fishing mates and a really cool story for you this morning which will help you choose the freshest local seafood. That's if you can't catch it yourself. On the way on The Big Fish. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Here comes Stinker with his fishing tips. Some hot advice for your fishing trip. Where to find him? What's the bait? Are you catching any, mate? Good morning, Stinker. <laughs> G'day, Scott. You're on the old stomping ground. You're right up on the border for our northern New South Wales listeners to The Big Fish. Well, the Tweed River, um, I'll always be, although I've been a resident of Port Stephens and Fingal Bay for the last 50 years, I'll always be a boy from the Tweed. <laughs> and that's pretty much how it is. Uh, all my teenage years, all my, well, my uh, my years up until I left home uh, was spent on the Tweed. And I went to Tweed River, Tweed Edge Primary School and Tweed River High School. And I oh, look it. It was a wonderful place to grow up, and, and that's where I got all my fishing interest in fishing, and so it just bloomed from there, really. But I spent most of my teenage years at South Tweed Heads, uh, and out there was where the Aboriginal people and South Sea Islanders would gather, and we lived, our family lived in the street adjacent to Water Street uh, on um, Eukery Bar Passage, which is, um, oh, just a wonderful area. And all my mates were, most, a lot of my mates were Aboriginal kids or, or South Sea Islanders, and we had the greatest time. It was, every day was an adventure. And so um, it was great to, for the, the McDermott boys, uh, Claudia and Jimmy, and they were friends of mine. They've been lifetime friends of mine. So they come around and said, let's go and have a cup of coffee, Clarkie. So off we went over to Cool and Gatta. And it was very pleasing to meet up with others that, that I'd shared my childhood with, um, Michael Ryan. And these are all blokes that played uh, NRL. And Larry Corowa, Larry was there. And I'm, a, I'm a Jets. I'm an old Jets fan, so I know Michael Ryan. I, I used to love the Newtown Jets. My dad grew up at Newtown, and I was uh, at their games from a very young age when they played Manly in that uh, final that led to the war, uh, it just Michael Ryan was as hard as nails. Fantastic. Michael played for Newtown uh, against Parramatta in the grand final, and Parramatta won that. And then he played for um, Canterbury. Yeah, that's uh, right. They had Bowden and Bugden and Sigsworth and all of yeah. those great players, and little <laughs> Tommy Radonikus and, and Wilson, the other halfback. Oh, and they, yeah, they, you know them all. Oh, I was at that game too. That broke my heart when the old Jets got done. But tell, if you see Michael Ryan again, tell him he's got a fan here on the Big Fish. He was a fantastic centre and a, a great tackle, a great defensive centre. Yeah, that. Yeah, well, I I watched him all through his uh, junior rugby league because Tweededs was very very strong area for rugby league, and everybody, all the kids wanted to play for the local team, which was Seagulls. Seagulls Rugby League team. If you could put on the black and white of Seagulls, oh, gee, it made you feel good. <laughs> so I, bu- I bumped into all those blokes, which was just, oh, 
a lot of the blokes from Tweed never left, you know. Uh, they thought, well, this is it for us. And so most of my school friends really never, ever left Tweed. Why would you, but, why um, would you Stinker? Why would you? <laughs> I'm one of the few ones that have, that have sort of left, but I still love to go back. But sometimes it bothers me, Scott, because I feel as though the Tweed River is under too much pressure. It's only in, in um, sort of showing up with other river systems, and particularly Port Stephens, where I'm settled now, the Tweed River is only a trickle in comparison to the mighty waterway that Port Stephens is. But, uh, and it bothers me because it's so um, it's popular. People from Brisbane and, and any, all over the place gravitate to the Tweed River. And they're all fishing, and they've all got a lot of jet skis. It's become a bit of a raceway for jet skis, and I just don't think that it can handle it. And sooner or later, I feel as though fisheries have got to have to have a, a real serious look at not only Tweed River, but sort of little river systems along our coastline that are coming under increasing pressure. I, I went up into the lake, and I must say. The amount of yabbies up there, well, some people call them nippers, but the acres and acres of, of yabbies, and they are... You can have a dig there, and, and if you get less than six, you you know, you'd, you'd expect to get six yabbies every time you pump. Yeah, well, that's... I had a bit of a problem with a nipper pump last week. I did a bit of fishing, and I, I made the fatal mistake of servicing it, Stinker. It was a bit corroded, so I sprayed some graphite lubricant into it and it, it meant that the rubbers didn't grip, and it had no suction at all. I got 14 nippers for the session, and I got 10 brim, 10 keeper brim. So I was doing all right, but, um, yeah, it was hard yakker if it's not sucking properly. Well, there's a little trick that you should know. When you're not using it regularly, you will find there's a, a, um, a, a screw in there that you've got to unscrew it. Um, yeah, it's like a it's like a, a wing nut. Wing nut, that's exactly yeah, what. Yeah, a brass a brass nut. wing nut. Yeah, well, mine's that's what it is. Mine's locked yeah, what in. What you've got to do is release that, and then that'll um, release pressure on the washer because if you leave it tight, the rush, the washer actually compacts and it perishes, and then it, it loses its suction power, and that's what happened to you. So when you went up there, it wasn't sucking, I assume. That's right. Yes, I had to work very hard to get 14, 14 nippers, but uh, I've got a pretty good hole that I that I fished. It's, uh, you know, the big fish come in, and, and it was great. I, but I can't get through the brim to the whiting at the moment, Stinker. There are just so many big brim, and they're so big and fat and ravenous that they keep taking every bait and I know the whiting are there but uh, there are just so many brim in the system at the moment it's really been supercharged I think by all the bait fish and all the food that's come down with the, the nutrients from the wet Well Terranora Lake with, I, call, I would have dug 14 yabbies in two pumps <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how thick they are and it's just like I said acres and acres well, this is a good sign it is. It's Remember, there was a fight there. One of your local mates um, was trying to stop people trampling the, the yabby beds. Did that uh, turn out well? It turned out extremely well. Uh, and he saved that area and he needs a medal. Leslie Golding, his name was. The Lord of the Lakes, you call him. The Lord That's of the Lakes. Right. And, and folks, his mate. It was um, recreational fishermen who just took it upon themselves to protect the lake. And they did a wonderful job. 
And so I dug all these yabbies and I floated around the lake on the run-in tide, the change of the tide, the run-out I fished there. I caught heaps and heaps of fish, but I never kept one. Um, the brim, well, I'm not a real brim. I'm not a brim fan. I caught a couple of brim that were illegal, but I didn't bother about it. Uh, one flathead and one little flounder. When I haven't seen a flounder for years, uh, but I caught so many whiting, but they're all small. Uh, and now I don't know whether it's a good sign or what, but there was not a legal fish amongst them. Um, and I'm hoping I'll be coming back again in January, February, and maybe there, there could be bigger fish come into the system. But I'm a bit concerned. Has there been that, a decline in, in flathead numbers, Stinker? You were saying that, and, and Les, the, the Lord of the Lakes, and a few of the other locals who haunt that waterway, saying that they've seen quite a decline in, in flathead numbers. Is that still yep. the case? Yep. It, it's very sick. It's very, very obvious. that, the, And this is the, the reason I'm going to speak to fisheries and say, look, you know, what can we do about it? We've got to do something. But anyway, uh, there is something else that, I mean, there are plenty of yabbies and there are plenty of wild oysters. Oh, dear, oh, dear. And, then, of course, there's Sydney rock oysters and they grow on the mangroves and they grow on the rocks and they get big and fat and plump. Now, you can take them, but you can't chip them off the rocks and take the oysters home. But you can take oysters um, and put them in a bottle and take them home like that. But, oh, gee, they're absolutely beautiful oysters. And we make a mornay out of them and put them in a steak, put them over a really lovely barbecued steak. Oh, they're magnificent. Oh, you can't get anything better. The old carpet bag steak. I think the, oh. the rule of thumb that a, a dear old bloke who took a feed of them within the bag limit, of course, in my history, said if it's, if it's been dry for two weeks, then you'll be right. And he'd been eating them for 80 years. So I think he was a fairly good guinea pig. And um, sadly, it hasn't been dry for two weeks where I live uh, for two years. So I haven't been having a feed of, of local oysters, but it's always a good fallback, isn't it? Hey, we're speaking with Stinker, who's back on the, the Tweed, his stomping ground, and I believe you caught up with one of the most, ex- a Moolumbar boy, a local boy, one of the most exciting rugby league players to ever lace on a boot. He used to fly down the wing for Balmain, and he was just the most poetic runner uh, anyone's ever seen play rugby league. Is he a fisher person too? Oh, Larry, oh, not so much. Larry Coralwell, the Coralwell family is a very famous family around the Tweed, um, and there are many, many families. And and the the um, South Sea Islanders and Aboriginal, all they all played rugby league. <laughs> all my photos of when I was under four stone seven and five <laughs> stone seven, and and going back a few years now, at least fifty percent of my team were all those kids. I bet you Larry Corrow has stepped away from you and left you in his dust. He was the fastest thing to ever ever catch a football. Yeah, no, well, Larry's a bit younger than me, but uh, but everybody on the Tweed will remember a boy called Kevin Burns. Now, Burnsy was equally as talented as Larry, but Burnsy never really concentrated on it and, and sort of he never went where he should have gone. And there were plenty of kids like that that never, ever fulfilled their potential. Uh, and uh, we all agree. We sat around the table and we said, remember Kevin Burns? And they we said, yeah. And um, I haven't seen him for a while. He's around. Burns, he's around. I just haven't seen him. 
But he was incredible talent. And, and uh, what did Larry, uh, what did you talk to Larry about? Because he was just the most exciting footballer I've ever seen, I think. Blacklock and Ferguson, they were two fantastic uh, Aboriginal wingers as well. Oh, look, that, that's for sure. Yeah, no, it, uh, it was great fun growing up with all those blokes because they're all love fun. They're, they're into fun. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, it's been a great time. I'll head back to um, Port Stephens and I've got a few things planned before Christmas and then after Christmas we'll come back up to Tweed again. So I'm very fo- fortunate, Scott, that, I, that I can, I've got a place at Tweed Heads, the old family home on the Terranora Lakes, but with the oysters. Oh, now, something else I meant to tell you, that the trawlers, the prawn trawlers that can come in at, at the Tweed, you can buy your prawns straight off the prawn trawler. Oh, how good's and that? they are sensational prawns. And eating fresh prawns the morning that they were caught and cooked, it puts a, you know, prawns are just like everything else, eaten best fresh. And we just peeled them and put them on a fresh bun with lettuce and avocado and a squirt of mayo and then close the bun and then there's your meal. Oh, <laughs> off you go. And the ones that are left over, you turn into curried prawns and you have them at night time. Uh, we live like kings, really. Did you feed those brim that uh, live safely under the, the trawler's stinker? There are a few uh, there you reckon... Uh, They've got PhDs, and, and they're, they're bigger than anything you've ever seen. Ah, uh, look, I must say, Scott, I saw the biggest brim I have ever seen in my entire life, uh, and I never knew brim could grow that big. Now, people will say, well, how big was it? Well, look, I, it's, hard to, it's hard to say because I didn't measure it and I didn't weigh it, but I've seen brim over two kilos, and this brim was well and truly over two kilo. I reckon it'd be, I reckon it'd be at least two and a half kilo, um, and that's where I'd suggest around that. And I've only ever seen one that big, but all the old trawler men, because this fish was caught on a hand line using a prawn head for bait, and it was just dangled underneath the trawler when the trawler come in, and these brim all gather underneath the trawler. And he caught this thing on the hand line and it went as, his line went as tight as a violin string and he's pulling and pulling and up it come. Oh, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And he, and the other, the old trawler men sitting on the jetty, it takes a bit to get them excited about much. And they just said, that's the biggest brim we've ever seen. I reckon it had to be close, over two and a half kilo anyway towards, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't like to say too much more than two and a half kilo, but... Oh, what well, a monster. They said, oh, they said, that's a grey snapper. I said, what a grey snapper. I said, that's a brim. He said, yeah, only joking, mate, only joking. <laughs> well, he'd, he'd been in a good paddock. Hey, tight line stinker, we'll catch you next time. Have fun on the tweed. And if you can't catch those big whiting, you can catch up with your mates. That's the main thing. Hello, <laughs> Scott. And coming up on The Big Fish, some good news when it comes to eating fresh prawns from our local waterways. This is The Big Fish with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Had a bit of snow across the mountains last week with the cold change coming through. Batlow, Tumbarumba, up at Cooma. And aren't those trout streams going to go berserk as soon as they settle down after all of the rain 
Here's a song for those trout fishers up in the high country. Colray Price, mountain blues man, loves chasing the wild trout east of Tumbarumba. with Scott Levi on ABC Radio. Have you had a feed at the local pub or club bistro recently? How do you know if you're sitting down to a feed of prawns farmed on the Mekong Delta of Vietnam or some fresh schoolies straight out of the waters of Tugra Lakes dragged that morning by a pro fisher? Apart from the massive difference in taste and texture, you wouldn't have a clue. But soon, thanks to some cool legislation, restaurants will have to let you know on the menu or the chalkboard where the seafood is from. David Meehan is the member for the entrance at Tugra Lakes and explains 
what it's all about. Country of origin labelling, it's really, really, really important. And um, and look, for some time now, um, last couple of years, people, when they go to a supermarket, you'll probably know that if you go to the, um, go to the seafood counter, you, know, you can identify where the fish, uh, the seafood has come from, which is, which is really great. And um, that's raised awareness um, in the community. But um, if you sit down at a restaurant or a club or a pub, um, that's not the case. Um, we don't know where it comes from and um, local commercial fishers um, I was at Sydney Fish Market yesterday morning for a bit of a tour um, you know they say well look you know things get you know, uh, you know passed off as you know well barramundi everybody thinks barramundi's Australian but a whole bunch of it comes from overseas um, and it's farmed so um um, there's some really good news coming out of uh, Canberra for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of those reasons is um, we're going to get action on country of origin labelling across the board. So, you know, restaurants, clubs and pubs, um, the whole um, the whole of the hospitality food service industry um, will be required to um, identify the, um, the source of seafood um, when it's served on their premises. Um, the federal government announced that in the uh, the budget re- recently, 1.6 million, has been allocated to undertake that work over the next couple of years. Uh, and in Australia, we we try and do a uh, um, handle um, labelling on a national basis. The states have um, handed over their powers to the Commonwealth and cooperate in that regard. Um, so the federal government is leading on this, and I really welcome it. Um, a couple of years ago, I tried to get a, um, a bill up in the New South Wales Parliament about seafood labelling. Um, the state government um, yeah, rejected that on two occasions. Um, they said they'd do something about it because there were parliamentary inquiries um, after the business adjustment program for commercial fishers, um, and that you know, really... Uh, ravaged that industry. They said they'd do something about it in New South Wales. Look, they never did. Um, so, look, I'm really, really pleased that um, the new federal Labor government is, um, you know, one of their first acts um, is to to move on seafood country of origin labelling. Um, it's going to be a big boost for our local industry and environmentally it's a really important step as well. Because once you fix up country of origin labelling, then you can start fixing up whether it's wild caught or farmed, and you get the names right as well. You know, there's a whole bunch of people in the industry, you'd be um, you'd be amongst them, um, who are really passionate about identifying fish properly, um, not passing off one species as another species, which is pretty common. So once we start with country origin labelling, we can move to make sure um, we identify the fish properly, um, and that improves the sustainability of our, our fishing stock and um, enhances the environment. What are the logistics of, of bringing this in at a national level, Mr. Mayor? Well, look, we already do it um, in in relation to supermarkets. So it's it's not a huge step from there to making sure we do it. Um, at least um, it's pretty easy in pubs and clubs, um, you know. And I can tell you, I can tell you, listeners, that you know the average um, meal you'll be served at a pub and club is probably imported fish if you if you if you're ordering the fish off the menu. Um, but but having proper country of origin labelling in place will start to encourage, I think, people to ask the question. Well, hey, you know, why haven't you got any Australian sourced seafood on your menu? And that'll filter through. The system, um, and um, it will boost our local industry. And look, we we do have 
capacity in this country to, to grow our seafood industry. It's not huge, um, but the farmed component can certainly be um, uh, grown in this, this country and in this state. And, um, and that'll get a big boost from country of origin labelling. And look, it's just doing the right thing by the, our local um, commercial fishers. You know, often, you know, it's been a family business for many years. You know, Alan Reed and his family on Tugra Lake. Um, I'd really like to see um, people um, asking for and, and being able to um, properly identify um, fish on their plate on the central coast that was caught on Tugra Lake or off the off the shore of um, the central coast. You know, and and that's only going to happen um, with government mandate. I think. Cool. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Mr. Meehan. Thanks, Scott. As uh, David Meehan, the member for the entrance, which is, has a big uh, commercial fishing uh, enterprise on the Tugra Lake system and, and offshore as well. And uh, they're saying that uh, this uh, country of origin labelling will mean you'll be able to know the provenance of your seafood and, and maybe buy local, cut down on carbon and food miles and uh, get something a bit fresher and a bit better. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.